1: Well, welcome, everybody, to another episode of Leverage Masters. I am your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Graves, and along with my partner and co-host, Jack Humphrey, we are the founders of TheLeveragist.com and Divisio.com. and we have got a fantastic show lined up for everybody today. How are you doing, Jack?
0: Great, great, great. I'm excited to be alive.
1: (laughs) Nice. It's finally having that warmer weather you've been praying for for months?
0: Yes, it is uh, it is definitely warmer, and it's, it's doing a very good job of it.
1: Awesome. Well, why don't you tell everybody about our fantastic guest for today?
0: We have with us today Candice Campbell. We all call her Candy, I suppose. It says right here. (laughs) Candy (laughs) Campbell has worn two hats for many years. One is a healthcare professional. The other is an artist and Oregon native. Candice Campbell came to the nursing profession through a circuitous route. And, man, I'm going to stop right here because you have a storied past. And I think it's going to (laughs) come a lot better from you. Uh, because I just looked down this list of everything, and there's lots of alphabet stuff. ER, ICU, CCU, RN, DNP, FNAP. I don't even know what some of those things mean, (laughs) most of those things, actually. So maybe you can tell us and actually get us kicked off with what is burning in your belly these days? What really gets you excited to get out of bed, like on today?
2: Well, thank you, Gina and Jack. It's such a pleasure to be here. And the thing that gets me burnt out of bed lately is just the fact that I'm at the age now where I've got so many years in, um, let's say, two camps, you know, of my two hats, both artistically and as a nurse, that there's a lot that I want to share before it's my time to say goodnight.
0: Awesome. And how are you doing that these days? Like, I mean, there's a lot going on. I went to your website, and I actually, uh, well, I'll let you break the news to everybody, but how (laughs) does Florence Nightingale come into all of this stuff, just to start us off?
2: Okay. Well, you know, it's a kind of a funny thing. Um, I wasn't a nurse first. I was an actor and an artist. I've been, you know, that kind of bent my whole life. And at the time that I decided to become a nurse, so this is, I'm going to take us back a little, (laughs) if that's okay. Um, Almost four years ago, um, after I got a degree in acting, I'm classically trained as an actor. Then I decided that I, since I had this sort of casting couch experience and was told that this is going to be the way, you know. Uh, that you get to the top in acting, and I rejected that notion. Uh, I thought, well, I can I can couch surf and eat ramen noodles for many years, or I could eat well if I took off my clothes, and I wasn't willing to do either one. So I decided I would uh, I would take some time and think and do something I really enjoyed. I had the opportunity to travel as a flight attendant with Pan Am. And so that was, you know, in the 70s, in the days when we wore bowler hats. And uh, it was
0: all,
2: it was different, let's say. It was different. And so
0: coincidentally,
2: people who fly, uh, especially if they imbibe in alcoholic beverages uh, up, you know, 30,000 feet up when People don't even realize, I think, sometimes that the cabins are pressurized to 10,000, which means that if you're on ground level and you have two drinks, your your body um, can't handle it as well if you're at 10,000 feet. And consistently, mm-hmm. we because you know in first class the drinks were flowing, you know, as much as you could hold basically because you can't, you know, there was no problem with sending you home or driving. You would just they would just give you as much as you wanted and as as a result we pretty consistently had people getting either sick to their stomach or just needing oxygen and so one of those flights I was helping and then uh, came back to my seat and turns out we had terrible terrible turbulence and while I was in the back of a 747 with my seatmate, we were told you know, everybody had to buckle up then we had the ringside seat when we took a really big dump, a uh, dive, <laughs> dive in the airplane of, of seeing 124 people vomit in unison.
0: Oh boy!
2: Yeah, and so <laughs> I I realized that day that there are some people who run to help and some people who run to hide. I ran to help. My seatmate ran to hide. And when she came back, she said, What were you just saying about you thought you might like to be a nurse? You know, it sounds like maybe you should be, especially when I told her, she said, How can you stand it? And I said, Well, it seems to me that if it weren't so sad that they were being sick, it was kind of pretty, you know, ribbons of vomit. And that's when she said, Yeah, you have to fix you. <laughs> so, so I went to nursing school because, like I said, I, I just didn't know about how this acting was going to come about. Well, then turns out that in nursing school, I became more politically active. And you know, if you know anybody who's actor is active in theater, that's not such a far field thing because a lot of experimental theater. Is politically motive- motivated, and I saw some things in healthcare that upset me. Right, and mm. so it started out, and I really am getting to Florence Nightingale. Florence is my third solo show. My first and second ones were um, well, they're all about healthcare. Uh, the second one was more politically motivated. And I don't mean politically like a, a party this way or that. I'm just saying in terms of what's uh, right to do within our society, you know, how we treat people. And the second, uh, the second one was a, a show that had to do with uh, homelessness and, and uh, at, the, at the time. This is way before the Affordable Health Care Act or anything like that. It was a time of the HMOs when people were getting pushed out of hospital really quickly, and I think that's still happening in a lot of things like that. The first one was pure comedy. But then I, I decided I wouldn't do another show until I had a really good reason to do it. And I started grad school and realized, you know what? All of Florence Nightingale's writings are now online. And she wrote like more than 200 books and articles. She wrote, Hmm. uh, well, we have more than 15,000 of her letters that are still around. So I started reading. I read most everything. And a friend of mine in the National Speakers Association said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're getting a doctorate in nursing. And you're not doing it on Florence Nightingale? I went, no, no, it has to be kind of serious. You know, it's not, that's not what it's about. And he said, well, why aren't you doing a show on Florence Nightingale? And
1: I thought,
2: oh, my gosh. I need to do that. <laughs> so
0: that's how it started. <laughs> that is crazy. I love this show for all of the stories especially the really wild ones like this because it's different man you've lived a different path in life (laughs) and I love experiencing everybody's different things how things came to be the kind of stuff that you did and we typically interview people here on Leverage Masters who somehow or another buck the system like you certainly didn't take the path. Most trod upon, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and most of our guests are like that. But today, I think you've really pushed the envelope a little bit because this is something <laughs> that I just never even imagined. And it's awesome. <laughs> it's wonderful. So, how does that play into your life today? What What does your typical day look like? How are you um, How are you helping people? The, the way that you help people in in their lives today.
2: Well. You know, one of the things that I always said is that I do a lot of things because I'm easily bored. And so what I do a typical day is not a typical day. So today I happen to be between, um, between classes because I still work as a professor in a graduate school of nursing at the University of San Francisco. I'm very dedicated to bringing up the next uh, generation of nurses, and I suppose part of it is selfishly because you know, we're all getting older, we're all gonna need a nurse someday, and I just want to make sure mm-hmm. they're doing a good job. But I love it, you know. One of the reasons I love what I do is because I get to infuse the learning, um, some of the majority of what I teach. I teach a couple of theory classes on leadership and research, but. My favorite classes are really the simulation classes because we get to practice improv. And that is something that is such a a skill that is so applicable. It does not matter what your business is. As a matter of fact, it turns out that, um, gosh, in the early 90s, um, three friends plus myself, co-founded an improv company in the San Francisco East Bay area, the only one at the time in the East Bay. And we played together for about three years, and we'd do shows for a weekend or whatever. And it was 1995 when a man came up after the show, and people always came up afterwards and asked us, oh, come on, did you really just make that up? Or... You must have had an idea. (laughs) You kind of, you know, you kind of plan something. We're like, no, no, no. And this particular night, this guy said, um, well, come on, that bit when there was a crash backstage, that was planned, right? Yeah, well, no. What had happened that night was that uh, one of our actors was off stage where it was dark and we had cups of water on a tray. Well, we never used ceramic after that, ceramic cups after that because he tipped it over and there was a horrible crash and three of us were Hmm. on stage and of course, you know, as improvers we just, I can't even remember what happened but we melded that into the scene and the audience was delighted of course and this guy said, well in that case can you guys come and teach my engineers how to play nice with each other, you know and so that is how uh, I, I started teaching improv to the business world in 1995 in Silicon Valley. Turns out, uh, healthcare has been lagging behind in understanding what a terrific method this is to break down walls and build bridges, as I say.
0: That is amazing. <laughs> Once again, I'm just like, but well, that's—I would have never thought. And that's been going on since 1995, and that's just crazy to me to live in a world where you think you know pretty much what's going on, and there's people like you doing things like you're doing. Uh, I'd never even thought of that. How does it help, <laughs> though? I mean, so the enge- so the engineers or the Silicon Valley folks, uh, why do they want to do this? What kinds of results are they seeing as a, as a result of the work you're doing with them?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I'm thinking that one of the things that is is so rewarding is that when I'm teaching the students and um, I allow them to do this thing we call pause and reflect, which is really more like what happens when... If you've ever been on an athletic team, or learned a musical instrument, or been in a theater drama play, or anything like that, you know what coaching is like, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we do this thing where they they prepare a case, and we know exactly what is going to be the case. You know, we tell about the patient. And then we seed the case with some difficulties, right? And so because we're teaching yeah. about uh, co- communication just as much as skills, then w- we allow them to pause when they kind of get stuck. Just like your coach, you would do if you were having a problem or, you know, your coach stopped you. I had the opportunity to pause for – um I call it a point of information or a point of contemplation, and then sometimes we rewind so that these non-licensed learners who haven't really had the experience of understanding what it might be like can finish well and understand you know and, and find uh, can we say, exercise their
0: own voice? Nice. So yeah, so it's kind of like uh, as a geek. <laughs>
1: star yeah. Trek
0: and and those guys when they would run scenarios at the at the starbase at the academy to get prepared for actually going into space and actually dealing with real life situations in a safer environment and uh yeah so i, I i'm starting to see why this is this is so important and so very useful and this kind of work you do so you're a professor and that seems like it would mm-hmm. take up an awful lot of time. Are you a full-time professor?
1: Um,
2: well, two days a week, and I don't know if you want to call that full-time. Uh, sometimes the school calls that full-time. It just depends upon your, your load. But my business full-time as well, so I, I pretty much have my plate full because I – well, let, let me put it this way – I do travel a lot. In fact, I just got back uh, – Gina seems to have an Irish name. I just got back from Ireland, by the way, and and England um, because my school sent me on a promotional tour, and they do that sometimes. But often um, I will be going to different conferences. I do a lot of nursing and healthcare conferences uh, either – well, very often it's a twofer. I'll do a, a breakout as, uh, you know, do an improv breakout or pre-conference workshop, and then often I'll be the opening or closing keynote as Miss Nightingale. So it's either or.
0: Now, to walk us quickly or briefly or lengthily, if you'd like, uh, through <laughs> what a keynote from Florence is like. Like, just because I don't know that we're ever going to be able to, among our listeners who may be in the healthcare area, I don't know that we're ever going to get to see you do this. So, can you give us a taste or a flavor of what it's like to to have her as a keynote speaker?
2: Well, let me just say for your listeners, if they go onto my website there's or my YouTube channel, there are <clears throat> there are many films of <clears throat> little video clips of Miss Nightingale in person. Um, Are you saying that you'd like Miss Nightingale to appear here?
0: Oh, no, no, I wouldn't put that level of pressure on you. I was just saying, you know, is it just in period? Is it like her and the way she would be talking today about modern things? Or, like, how do you cross Mm -hmm. that all over?
2: Ah, thank you for that question. Uh, That was actually the question that, Uh, loomed large after I read all of these works of hers and I came across I I started to sort of dissect her work right Um, in a scholarly way if you will but but also in an artistic way because I had in mind that I wanted to do a show and I already actually sold the gig before I had written a show so how about that let's talk about uh, uh, leverage yeah, leverage. Somebody had a lot of faith in me, and I had already been learning about you know you can you can pitch a book or pitch uh, a show or whatever without actually having done it. So I knew that I had a group that had already paid me half the price to do a fifty—that's five zero minute show. And so what I did was I made columns, and at first there was two columns, and then I realized it had these three columns of themes that came across in her work and these were the things integrity insight and innovation so that's how I started I figured out the kinds of because you know those those topics kept coming up in just about everything that she wrote and well little side note she was not just I say not just a nurse uh, not just the the person who started professional nursing but she was a statistician um a public policy wonk she you know helped influence healthcare and sanitation on four continents after she came back from the Crimean war and was a semi invalid it's quite amazing
1: her story
0: yeah and you um, know, with with your familiarity with that story uh, the the way that you could almost feel like, or maybe you do, as if uh, you're channeling her a bit and bringing <laughs> her message and everything into the modern light, that crossover intrigues me quite a bit.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. Well, what happened is that uh, precisely what you were saying, after that first show, and I was calling it, um, and I often do call it uh, Florence Nightingale Live, um Somebody said to me, oh, my gosh, it's like you're channeling. I forgot it was you, you know. And that's a great compliment for an actor, of course. And she said, of course, Mm. this person knew me. You know, and she said, I didn't know that you... She said, one of the reasons I forgot it was you is because you're speaking in a British accent. Well, I said, first, I'm an actor that specializes in dialects. But secondly, I lived in London for two years, so... That wasn't such a big deal for me. But uh, that's how we came across or came up with the name of the book, Channeling Florence Nightingale, Integrity, Insight, Innovation, because people who came to the show, and I started doing the show, um, were saying, do you have anything else? And I didn't know what else to give them. (laughs) So so I kind of took the book or took the script and made it more prose-like. And then a friend of mine, uh, Mark LeBlanc, who's a wonderful author and speaker, who also is one of my mentors in the National Speakers Association, uh, he suggested a parallel track. And he said, why don't you, with each of these three um, themes, which I had separated into three acts, if you will, he said, Put in how those things have influenced your life. So the book is two things. It's her story and my story, which is a little bit different.
0: Hmm: Yeah, it, I'm just trying to figure out where because this is so <laughs> cool like being able to, uh, to do that well, let me ask you this, and it's kind of hard because you've been you your whole life. And so you're kind of in this, and you're not a third-party observer of yourself. But actually, you probably have the training to be much more so than an average person uh, without that training. But in your in all this time, you've had this very, very unique life up to this point. And you've watched everybody else pretty much go through um, – like they'd go to nursing school, they'd become nurses, and that would be their career. And that was that was what they told everybody they were. What do you do? What? What? Do you, I'm a nurse. I do this, and this is what I do. And you mixed it all up. You, I'm trying to get at the root of what makes people like you tick. And <laughs> and there's so many of you that come through our show because you've noticed that you're a little unusual, right? Among the people that you went to. Uh, went through nursing school with. And among the people that you, you know, you go to events and things like that, I mean, you have realized a little bit that you're unique, right? What makes that happen? Well, yeah. I mean, like, what? how do you know um, that you can even do the things that you've done in your career?
2: Well, I, I think maybe there's two things. First of all, did I lose you? I just, it, you copped out a little bit. Are you still there? I'm here. Hello? Near we this. have a bit okay. of a lag.
0: Yeah. A bit of
2: a lag. Okay, sorry. Um, I think two things. First of all, I have reflected on this, and I think reverse psychology has something to do with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> in my era of uh, going to uh, college, was not something that every woman did. And if you did, it was nurse teacher or, um, let's see, nurse teacher or secretary and I always thought I wanted to be a nurse but my uh, junior high school counselor said well let's look at your score your test scores and it looks here like you get B's and C's in science and you're off the chart in reading and comprehension you should probably be a teacher so that's you know I have a minor in teaching at first but I think when my, first of all, I didn't even know I was going to go to college because I, I, <laughs> I floated the idea to my father and he said, why don't I just burn the money? <laughs> you know? And so I didn't know well. that I was going to go. I finally did get to go and got a minor in teaching. And then, like I told you, things happened that sort of, you know, just happened. now. I'll tell you one other thing. My father is, uh, was an entrepreneur, and I think this uh, this has a lot to do, you know, your, your upbringing has a lot to do with it. I was around business all my life. Uh, all of us, he was a restaurateur, all of us had, you know, come up through the restaurant business. My mother worked in the restaurant as well, and he had big and small. He had a big nightclub at different times, and then smaller restaurants. We all understood that your place of business is an extension of your home. Not everybody gets that about business. And, that, and what he meant was not only do you put your own personality in it, you protect it and you go after business as though it's directly impacting your family because it is, right? So right. The, word, the word that my dad used a lot was opportunity. And he he leveraged opportunity in his circle. He was, oh, at varying times president of the Restaurant Association, president of the Lions Club, president of the Elks Group, pres- you know, all the animal groups. Mm-hmm. He was all out the animal there. groups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, he just did those things. And I think that despite the fact that he thought I shouldn't go to college, when I finally, you know, finished, he, you know, they were very pleased. Uh, but he was always in, uh, encouraging me to think outside of the box and what else he used to say, well, what else could you do? And then possibly the third thing that you asked, you know, what is it that makes you different or tick? And I think the third thing is that is that there's a still small voice within every single one of us. You know, some people say it's the inner editor or there's a, you know, a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, depending, <laughs> depending how you think about yeah. it. Well, I think that there's a, there's often a war in your head when you're thinking about the risk of stepping out and doing something different. And in terms of healthcare, it was when I was in nursing school and I had a job, uh, just a little part-time job as a nurse's assistant, just because I really didn't know anything about hospital. And something happened to me one night when I was working as a nursing assistant um, that was uh, not, it shouldn't have happened. And it wasn't. Let me just say that another nurse um, burdened me with a, a patient responsibility that I was not licensed to have, and I complained about that and stuck up for the patient who needed who needed more watching. And I went above her head to the house supervisor, and the recrimination that I received from going above her head was surprising to me, because, you know, coming out of Mm. the aviation industry, we would never put a a passenger at risk, and that was my training. This is a team, and if you can't get what you need from one, you go to the next. It's kind of the military model. So, at any rate, that that made me politically active, I think, in wanting to change the system, which brings us back to what I'm doing, why I'm doing what I'm doing.
0: That's amazing. So what would you tell people today? Because, like, there are pres- there were things screaming at you uh, when you were coming up, like, you know, your dad's reaction to you wanting to go to college and the societal things that you were supposed to do back then, teacher, secretary, or nurse, were the only possibilities. And luckily, you actually wanted to do one of those things because it- – would have been harder still (laughs) had you wanted to do something else because you were, Mm -hmm. you know, placed in those categories. But in present day, a lot of women women and and men, but women can look back and go, well, those were the things that we have overcome somewhat or completely. We're still working on an awful lot of things, but there are present day things that are saying with absolute certainty, um, voices in our own head from programming or voices from outside of us saying, you can't do this, it's impossible in business, in, you know, career advice and things like that, given your past, what would you tell people today about those things that seem absolutely – I mean, you must have looked up from your uh, your thoughts and contemplations about what you wanted to do with your life and everything and go and, and, and saw the top of a mountain very, very far away. I mean, there were obstacles in your way that were very considerable. Most women would have thought insurmountable. But, of course – that wasn't the case for you what would you tell people today looking at the same types of new modern mountains and some of the things date back but you know the new obstacles that they shouldn't be taking for granted that they're insurmountable
2: well thank you for asking that question that's a really that's a big big question and I think that the answer is pretty basic in in my way of thinking uh let me just unpack it a little bit first of all What I saw as mountains were not just gender issues because actually, by the time I went to nursing school, um, there were, I was looking around and seeing that I could have become a physician had I wanted to, and I actually um, did the, um, what do you call it, the uh, M and thought that maybe Mm. that would be the way because I. I knew by that time that I I thought I was probably smart enough but what I realized after I did that and kind of shadowed somebody for a day was that I wanted to be with the person more often than just a few minutes to diagnose that my my strength I think is in relationship and that I desired a longer relationship, which is something that nurses generally get to do, especially if they're in, you said you didn't know what all those initials were. Well, maybe not so much in the ER. That's I, I, I did some time in the emergency room there uh, as the nurse, not a patient. and uh, But ICU and CCU, you know, the intensive care, the cardiac care, and specifically, in labor and delivery, and in the NICU when my back got hurt and the doctor said, you need smaller patients, (laughs) and I went into Mm. the NICU. But, you know, every time I had an idea, well, let me give you an example. Around 1995, again, there was something else that happened in medicine that was quite unusual. I was working in the neonatal intensive care and had been since, 1989. And I noticed a distinct difference in the type of babies that we were seeing. And by the way, I was performing, doing stand-up and improv on the side because that was my release. You know, that was my fun thing. Yeah. And I was, you know, educating and everything. But my, my day job was that I was working with these teeny tiny babies in the NICU. Well, in 1995, There was an article in Reuters uh, that passed all throughout the papers. You remember papers? They were paper, and we used to read them. (laughs) Vaguely. (laughs) I've read
0: about them on the Internet, (laughs) not in the paper. (laughs) Uh,
2: Well, one day we came to work, and all the parents were passing around these papers that had um, an article about a study that had been done with babies who were born uh, from – oh, the late 70s to the late 80s, I guess. And it was a follow-up article to, you know, how are they doing now? And the oldest ones were in high school. And overall, the findings of that article were that a lot of these babies were going to be a burden on society, that their IQs were damaged because of the hypoxia or lack of oxygen that they suffered possibly during the birth experience. And that it was a waste of taxpayer money to keep these babies. Wow. Mm. You can just imagine how that landed on these parents. Well, here's the thing. In that day, we were, in 1995, we started saving babies that were as big as my hand, and I don't have big hands. You know, they were like a pound. Really tiny. Yeah. And I don't know... You have kids? Oh yeah. You have kids? Got a boy. You do. Okay. Well, if he was born, he was
0: he was uh, very hard to hold as a baby. He was an, a nine pounds and something.
1: <laughs> <clears throat>
0: and my wife remembers distinctly the doctor handing him to a nurse, saying, "Go weigh this and shipping and receiving." Our scale here won't <laughs> you know. He was making jokes. And then this little toe went all the way into the measuring stick. And I figure they probably got the measuring stick set on that table to the biggest baby they can imagine. And I watched his toe, as they stretched him out, get really close to the end of that thing. And I'm like, holy cow, what did we just have? So, yeah, uh-huh. opposite problem. Uh-huh. I was like, wow, opposite he looks hungry problem. to me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I get that. So the the particular babies we're talking about are babies that opposed to the the brute that you guys bore, which was obviously full term, (laughs) um, right? These little babies are only kind of half-cooked, you know. The ones that I'm talking about are called micro-premature babies. And they are weeks – now, if 40 weeks is term or 38 to 40 weeks is term, then – 24 to 28 weeks is somewhere around six months. It's not a lot, right? Yeah. I don't know if you've ever known anybody who had a baby like that, but we're saving them now. Hmm. Well, at yeah. any rate, this particular day, these parents who knew that the babies they were having or have had were way smaller than the ones in this study. It was really upsetting. So it kind of was like a a meme that happened within all the neonatal uh, doctors and nurses. We all really wanted to know whatever happens to these kids when they go home. And now, okay, so hold that thought. The other part of me as an actor is that um, since I moved to San Francisco area in 1992, I've had um, an agent, an acting agent, and have been doing, you know, voiceovers, commercials and such like that, films, you know. Well, because I was in touch with a lot of different producers, you know, each time I would do uh, some sort of work, I would mention it at the close of the day. I'd say, you know, I have a really great idea for some sort of like documentary film. It's pertinent and it's, you know, it's cutting edge. And I think you'd be really good as, as a person to take this idea. And each one of them said, you know, if you really are passionate about this, this is your baby. You should probably do it yourself. And I said, hmm. I've, got, I've got three kids. Um, I'm, you know, divorced mom, raising three kids. Two are in high school, and I I just don't have any time, and I certainly don't want to go to film school. But you know something? You asked what what were the mountains? That thing, that voice, just wouldn't let me sleep. It was like
1: Mm.
2: it was like you know a cloud um, that just I just knew that if it was going to get told, if this story was going to get told of. What is the result for these babies that go home that I would have to tell it? So that began a process, and I did.
0: Wow. So you feel like you had a little bit of help in a sense, right? Did it feel like that? It was like there was an urging, of a, a, a source of maybe energy or something that wasn't just you plucking yourself up by your own bootstraps on this. It was you and... Something else that voice or that energy, kind of sort of traveling with you to help you do this, because I mean you took on a hell of a commitment.
2: Well, yes, and you know I'm a Christian, so I have pretty pretty specific um, ideas of about this energy, and to me it was just uh, okay if this is supposed to be my path, then help me it's just what I kept saying help me because I'd come up against yeah. these walls you know and I, these barriers that I just didn't know for instance didn't have money for the equipment to do what I needed to do and here I was in film school and they would let us check out certain things you know to film like a camera or something, but they weren't very good ones, and it was just learning about all of this, and I happened to just sort of vent to a friend of mine who, at work, who was one of the respiratory therapists we worked with, and he said, are you telling me this because you know I'm a videographer? <laughs> <laughs> what? And long story short, he became my director of photography. And helped me immensely. Really, he did. And then I started asking people around if, like at the hospital where I was working, if I could film in the NICU. And big, big wall. No, 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 no. And another friend of mine said, well, if this is really uh, supposed to happen, if this is really important, it's really supposed to happen, why don't you... Get out of your comfort zone and call the local children's hospital. And um, there's in San Francisco area, there's the University of San Francisco uh, Medical Center. That's a big, you know, it's a big center. And I called them, and they understood. They got the, uh, they got it. They allowed, they rolled out the red carpet. They allowed me to film. They gave me anything I wanted. And. Now wow. that film, can you believe it? It's still every single week it sells. It's, you know, people stream it or buy the DVD on four continents. I give most of the money to the March of Dimes, so it's not like i believe me, I'm not. It <laughs> gives me maybe a Starbucks a week. But that's um, just an <laughs> example of, you know, just doing what you think you're supposed to be doing. Because my, my whole deal is when I... When I die, I don't want to say uh, to God, uh, well, you gave me all these gifts and I just, you know, buried them. I want to say, okay, as well, much yeah. as possible, right? I think I was doing as much as I could on the path you sent me. So,
0: Yeah. I think that there's an awful lot to the idea of you're not alone, in, in this world, in this existence. And I'm not talking about just friends, family, associates, and other physical beings. Uh, I, I have a really good sense of all the people. I really pay attention to success stories. I really pay attention to interviews of people who are very successful. And, and I've just kind of been keeping track of every time someone mentions an otherworldly urge, desire, source of energy, and whatever they call it, whether they call it God or source or the universe, to me, I don't even care. What I just care about the fact that it exists. And I keep finding evidence that it does. And we all have different names <laughs> for it. And I don't think the names matter as much as the fact that it does. And it's really weird that mm-hmm. we get a little bit wrapped up in the naming thing it's like wait a minute you guys we're talking about something really incredible and you're worried about what we're calling it come on now Uh (laughs) this has Uh got to stop Uh so but Uh it's a really common theme here on our show with people coming on and we always talk to people who are doing extraordinary things and, and a huge wide variety of those things in all kinds of industries and niches and and you are absolutely the first, and probably we will never have another guest like you <laughs> in your niche, and, in, and it's particularly the way that you do it, and that's why we love it. But I want our listeners to pay attention to this theme that is coming up. If you go back to previous shows and just pick out any one of them at random, you will find the same kind of thread somewhere in that show Somebody's talking about their success because we, you know, I kind of prod people to do so uh, as a rule, and and mm-hmm. it keeps coming up. And it's really leverage. It's like if you feel like you're alone, and maybe you can speak to this, if you feel like you're just dead alone completely and anything that happens in this world is going to happen on your sweat, on the, on your shoulders alone, I mean, how could you possibly do anything really big and significant that way because we aren't that powerful all by ourselves? Right, I mean, you could expand on what you had already kind of led up to, but isn't that true? I mean, we have to have some sort of leverage beyond our, our, we're powerful, but we're not so powerful that we can do everything alone and that, you know, we can just, oh, if it's to be, it's up to me, which is one of my least favorite sayings of all time. And I just don't believe in it because if it's to be, it was up to all kinds of people and maybe not even just people. But that energy that surrounds us, wherever we came from and wherever we're going back to, is playing around in this world, too. And I think it's what powers people like you.
2: Yes, I think that I cannot disagree. I think that that is really true. And that if you, um, here's what I often tell people. What is it that keeps you up at night? What's that little voice that, you know, when you're trying to go to sleep, or let's say you wake up in the middle of the night. What is that question or what is that thing that keeps you wondering? And, for instance, um, you probably know that I'm the author of several other books. The first one I ever wrote was My Mom as a Nurse. I didn't mean to be a children's author. That was never on my radar. Neither <laughs> was being, no, I didn't want to be a filmmaker either. Uh, these were things that I felt I had to do to accomplish a goal. And the only goal, and here's, again, about that voice. So a friend of mine at work was pregnant, really special friend of mine, and I was going to get her that book, My Mom is a Nurse. I knew I had seen it. I could remember some of the things. I couldn't remember. Uh, I, I remembered the words, not the pictures. And I looked and looked and looked, and I, I wore myself out looking for this book. It didn't exist. And I thought, I couldn't get, I, I just didn't know. So that night, I'm lying in bed, and it was like, it's years to create. I'm like, what? I don't have time for this.
0: <laughs> and Our first reaction and, always, right? <laughs> <laughs> who, me?
2: Right. And so after I did that, and I had to find an artist that I liked and all of that, I showed that book to one of the women who uh, was a friend who was in the film that I did. And she's not a nurse. Her sister's a nurse. So she said, of course, I got to have this book. And then she said, and I have your second book. And I'm thinking, I didn't know I had a second book. I just, I don't want to do this again. It was a lot of work. And she said, no, you've got to do, I was a preemie. Good things come in small packages. I was a preemie. That'll be the title. And I'm like, well, uh," she goes, just tell me you'll do it. I said, okay. And she said, tell me you use the same artist because this is really good. I said, okay. I went upstairs after she left where my computer was and said a little prayer. "Mm, Don't know what I'm doing here. Watch the cursor blink in the day. And do you know that in 28 minutes I had what the book was about? I mean, I had it written. It's a children's book. It's less than 200 words. You know, it's very short she had already told me the problem you know and a book always has to have a problem that it solves so she had already told me the problem that many parents of these micro premature babies have and that is that they tuck away those pictures you know that of where they were so little with you know tubes in their nose and ivs and all that they tuck them away and then someday some kindergarten teacher or something is going to ask for a baby picture so they can play that game, you know, who's who. And mm-hmm. that's how it, yeah, that's how it starts. They pull out the pictures. The kids freak out and we're mad at their parents for leaving them alone with strangers and things like that. So anyway, <laughs> that, <laughs> that's another little book that's out there. And it happened again, I'll tell you the last time it happened. After the Florence show, I finished my doctorate and my tagline is Blending Art and Science for Positive System Change. I wanted to do that because in order to get improvisational method into healthcare, I thought I needed more letters behind my name because I couldn't get through the door. And so the dean at the university was very much um, eager to have this uh, kind of program. And uh, I did the study over at Stanford with two groups who were at loggerheads, and and they loved it. And uh, I'll be working with Stanford, I hope, again. It looks like I will. And at any rate... After that dean left and I had, she asked me to write a course and then the new, um, the new group said, well, you know, we don't know. Well, I wasn't willing to let it rest, so that is how. Now coming up in June, I've decided to go ahead and offer a two-day um, seminar for nurses and healthcare persons on advanced communication techniques with the theme, you know, shameless, shameless promotion. The same as channeling Florence Nightingale, Integrity, Insight, Innovation. (laughs) I've got some wonderful speakers on those subjects. Miss Nightingale will be appearing so that our charity partner, people can um, give a donation to have their picture taken with Miss Nightingale, and Miss Nightingale will speak. And uh, day two is an improv workshop that they can use. It's v- it's very helpful for any kind of business, whether you're on the ground floor or you're a, you're a department chief or whatever. It talks, you know, this is something that is such a big problem in healthcare because when people don't communicate, then other people die.
1: Hmm.
0: That's a pretty serious problem, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm glad that we're doing this communicating today
1: (laughs) because uh, I think
0: you're a great example of of so many things, and I I would ask you the question that I ask everyone here, um, but given the caveat that you're this mosaic of likes and interests and things that you do and love, and and it's ever-changing, you are definitely an ever-changing being, so I'm not going to pin you down to what are your plans in the, uh, you know, second uh, quarter of 2018 or anything like that, but what do you want to do? What's the biggest thing that you really want to do uh, next? What's that big next thing? Is there a next or are you totally, completely happy where you are right now and you can't imagine a next?
2: Um, yes, no. <laughs> I'm not, I am totally happy where <laughs> I am. Of course. I really am. I, I'm just feeling I'm, I'm grateful to be where I am, and I certainly don't deserve it. But on the other hand, um, I am looking and, well, like I said, I just got back from Ireland and London, and I got an invitation. I was at a global nursing conference, and I got invitations to speak. I got an invitation to speak in nine other countries. And, you know, that would really be a fun thing. I would love to bring the nightingale message of integrity, insight, innovation, of tearing down walls and building bridges to healthcare people all around the world.
0: Awesome. Well I love that uh that's gonna happen for you, I can already tell. <laughs> like who does it who doubt anybody listening, do you have any doubt that this is gonna happen? for candy. Nobody's <laughs> raising their hand. I can't see. I know we're on radio, but I don't see anybody raising their hand. So, <laughs> yes. No doubt. Well, thank so, you for that vote. Okay, well, in terms Yes. <laughs> in terms of leverage, since we're on Leverage Masters, what can you wrap up how you how you bring to bear the tools that you've accumulated or tools that you use going, you know, coming up and uh you know, just to bring things to bear, like this, late, this, this next thing that you want to do or um, any facet of your life, like how do you use your resources? Obviously, you do in a very um, cohesive and efficient manner because, you know, you're kind of a dynamo, and dynamos can't really be floundering around in this leverage department. But how do you use leverage? Or is it just so natural? It's hard to ask somebody who's good at something because they don't think it's a big deal. So why are we even talking about it? And you might be one of those people. (laughs) But do you have a sense of of what your competency is in that area?
2: Thank you. Uh, I will tell you and all of your listeners one thing that has been very clear to me since uh, now I can say the beginning of the century. (laughs) Um, I think it's so important to surround yourself with people who are encouraging you. Now, some of those people I've hired to be on my team because they have skills that I don't have. And without them, I just couldn't, get, I just couldn't do everything because there's a lot of tasking. A lot of it I have to do. I have to oversee everything. Uh, the creative part, I do. And the ideas, I'm a big idea person, but I also, that's why I'm a big fan of the National Speakers Association. It's full of people who are business entrepreneurs who have made a living uh, going around spreading their message. Uh, they're trainers and facilitators and keynoters. There are a lot of great people. I also am plugged into the Chamber of Commerce in my city because that networking is just awesome. People go out of their way to help each other. And, of course, so I think that's the point, is not to just languish by yourself in your room, but to go out and keep your eyes and ears open Find the, uh, the um, uh, what do you call it, the, the little opportunities that seem to drop in your lap and just have faith that, that if this is what you're supposed to do, just keep at it and it'll happen.
0: Absolutely. Well, this is perfect. CandyCampbell.com for everyone listening. You can go look her up and there's an awful lot to do on your site. You have a lot of different <laughs> places. You've got workshops, keynotes, books and video, the blog. So uh, that's how everybody can get into your circle of influence. Who who would you like to meet? Who would you like to work with? Who would you love for somebody to fall into your lap uh, related to a project that you want to do or, or things that you're, you're interested in now?
2: Thank you for asking that. This is a big ask in terms of the universe. So uh, I've just been figuring out... How Let's in the world? <laughs> okay, well, what I really would like to meet is somebody who's the promoter who knows how to book theaters and get those kinds of sponsorships and things like that 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 would allow me to do to get into um, programs in communities because I think what what I've learned from presenting Miss Nightingale to the general public as well as to the healthcare uh, audiences is that the general public loves this message of blending history and the twenty first century and the message of course is seize the day with kindness.
0: Awesome. Well Candy,
1: you guys heard, you heard like it here Any of answer you promoters the Hold on.
0: Oh here we, we go. Have some <laughs>
1: leverage advice on how to find that. Please. So this goes for all of our listeners. When you know who you want to get a message in front of, stop for a minute and ask yourself who already has access to that audience. The associations that the theaters belong to is a good example. Uh Reach the associations and get them to introduce you to many of those theaters all at one time.
2: That's an awesome, that's an awesome idea, Gina. Thank you.
1: You're very welcome. And it works no matter what audience you want to get a message or something in front of. Just ask yourself, what's one layer above that? And leverage all the way.
0: Well, well, Candy, I thank you so
1: much. This has been a fantastic show. I did not mean to mute you there. That was quite by accident. <laughs>
2: That's all right. I want we to are... tell everybody that I have downloaded your book, too, and I am, can't wait to read it. Very, very helpful. Thank you.
1: You're very welcome. And we will be back same time, same place next week for another episode of Leverage Masters. Thanks again, Candy. This was awesome. If you need any more leverage ideas, just give Thank us a you. shout. Thank you, both of you. Bye now. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.
0: Tune in next week for another episode of Leverage Masters. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook on our Leverage Blackbook page to keep up with the latest. We'll see you next time on Leverage Masters.